So we are jumping back into Matthew 5 today. So if you have your Bibles or uh, whatever electronic device you're using to access the scriptures, go ahead and get to Matthew 5. Uh, we've obviously went through the holidays and Christmas and, and in the new year. In the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the direction we're heading for the church. In fact, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go on the website, either through the podcast or through the video. You can catch up to speed with the things we talked about last week, some important things about our future together. But uh, it's been since November, since we kind of took a break from our series called Disciple, walking through the different teachings of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Now we're jumping back in, and we played that video. That's, that's, the, that's the verses we've covered. That was Matthew 1, all the way actually to verse 16. And then the last message we had in November was 17 through 20, which Jesus really set up what we're going to look at probably about the next five or six weeks in the remainder of this chapter where he talks about this understanding of what it truly means to be righteous. In fact, let me just read verse 20, because then we'll talk about what we're going to look at today and then in the weeks ahead. So Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verse 20, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is saying, he says this, he says, listen, he said, there's a definition of righteousness that the religious leaders and religion have set up, and it's only skin deep. It's the appearance, it's what other people think, but it's not real. There's no substance behind it. Because what you and I are going to see in the weeks ahead is that Jesus will say, you have heard that it was said, and then he references something from the law. But then he says, then I say to you, and what he's saying is what this really means for your life is a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees that goes beyond the surface to the core of who you are, the transformation that God wants to bring in our lives. And so I'm just giving you a warning. The next probably five or six weeks... Not that it's not all the time, but relatively intense in what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus hits some really core issues in all of our lives. And we're going to call them relational landmines that all of us deal with, that we have to come to grips with. And the first one we're going to look at in verses 21 to 26 is this relational landmine called anger. In fact, many of you, when I, when I say that, if you, you think of, now if you know you, you deal with anger, you think of yourself. But most of us, we think of somebody else who has an anger issue, right? Everybody else is angry, I'm not. And we always define anger as that person who's always yelling at the top of their lungs or they're abusive or they're out of control and they're raging all the time. And that's our definition of anger. And the reason that's our definition of anger is because that doesn't represent most of us. But when we start to look at what Jesus says about anger today, we'll realize that it's not the person who rages that has the anger issue. In fact, that's just the outcome of anger. Anger is something that is deep down inside of us that we have to come to grips with. They have to be willing to deal with it. It's something that every once in a while it erupts and it comes to the surface, but it's something that's always been there. In fact, you can watch, you watch the news every week and you'll see the outcome of this. One of the most tra- the tragic things that happened this week, lots of tragedies in the world, one of them came out of a movie theater in Florida where a guy was texting his three-year-old daughter before a movie started, and the guy behind him got upset and angry, and they got into an altercation over texting in a movie theater, and the guy pulled out a gun, and he shot the guy and killed him on the spot. That's ridiculous. What is that? Well, that guy's angry. He was angry long before he pulled out a gun and killed another man. That was the ultimate outcome of his anger. And whether you and I want to admit it or not, we are capable of doing the same thing because all of us by nature are sinners and deal with deep-seated things inside of us, in our hearts, that cause us to really be angry that eventually it works its way out in our behavior. So let me jump into the passage and we'll talk about this, how we all end up dealing with this in our lives. So Jesus starts in verse 21 of Matthew 5. He says, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. 
Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still uh, on your way with, along with him, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Those are light and fluffy and flowery words that Jesus wants to share with us. Those are hard, penetrating, convicting words. This is the challenge that you and I have to understand this thing called anger that all of us deal with. And before we get into the specifics of the passage, I want to just for a moment pause and talk about what is anger and where does it come from in us. Again, it's again, anger usually is the issue that some, we think somebody else has. They're an angry person. Uh, it's funny, when you walked in and you got a bulletin, I noticed that the biggest word on your bulletin today is anger. It's like, welcome to New Hope. We're angry. You know, we're talking about this today. We have issues. But understanding where does this come from and what is it? In a nutshell, what anger is, it, like I said, it's not the raging person. That person has anger issues. But anger is a deep-seated, brooding, simmering, underneath the surface, unresolved issues in our life. That's what anger is. It's inside of us. It spends 99.9% of the time inside of us. And then every once in a while, it peeks its head out when we rage. Anger is in us. And anger comes, and the reason anger is in us is because it's true to all of us because of where it comes from. It comes from something that all of us deal with. In fact, listen, it'll be up on the screens. James and James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He describes for you and I where anger comes from. He says this, he said, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you need, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What is James talking about? He's saying the source of anger and fighting and difference and offense and all the things that that really ruin us relationally, they come from us. It's not your spouse's fault. It's not your friend's fault. It's not the pastor's fault. It's not your co-worker's fault. It's not the person on the freeway's fault. When you and I are angry, guess whose fault it is? It's ours because it comes from a selfishness in us that can't see beyond our own existence. We can't see people around us. We can't see from their perspective. So we value ourselves over them and therefore we become angry. Why? Because at the core we're selfish beings. So it comes from inside of us. Now some of you may be saying, no, wait a second. You know, you read through the Old Testament, God was angry. What about a righteous anger? There is time and seasons and places to be angry. But there are very few because when you read through the scriptures, God's anger isn't because somehow God was offended by us. See, our anger is usually based on what somebody else does. God's anger and righteous anger always had to do with other people, caring for other people. So righteous anger, perfect explanation. When you and I are angry about injustice in the world, that's a righteous anger. Because we're not angry about what somebody else did to us or angry about thinking about our own selfish desires. We're actually thinking about somebody else. But that's a very small percentage of what it means to be angry because most of our anger is not about the injustice in the world. It's about our injustice or how we feel like we've been dealt with unjustly in our life. So understanding that this morning, I want to just take some time and walk through beginning with the the first few verses in verse 21 
And answering the question, Jesus describes for you and I, what does anger look like? What does it look like in our lives? And in verse 21, he starts out with the ultimate outcome, and that is murder. He says, you have heard that it was said that people long ago, uh, they said, you should not murder. Obviously, he's quoting from the Ten Commandments. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So most of us in this room, I pray all of us in this room, never reach that point in our life where we want to take another human life. But that is the ultimate outcome of anger. That's the ultimate birthing of what's inside of us. It's what happened in the movie theater in Florida. It's what happens in our lives if we don't deal with what's going on underneath the surface. And it's something all of us have to come to grips with because what happens when we do that is that it's the pride and the selfishness inside of us that finally spills over. Where ultimately what we're saying is my life is more valuable than your life. And therefore, I have somehow can justify in my own mind that I, I should have the right to take your life. Now, that's the ultimate extent. You think, well, I would never do that. I would never get offended in a movie theater and shoot somebody over texting. I would never explode and take somebody's life. But you know that the core and the root of that is in all of us? And it comes out in different ways. Have you ever been angry at somebody else on the, on the road when you're driving? Come on, if you're driving, raise your hand. Now, if you're not driving yet, it's coming. You'll experience this. See, what happens is you and I, when we get on the freeway or we're driving down the street, you don't know it, but what's kicked in in your brain is you have a value system. And in that value system, you are assessing value to all the other drivers on the road with you. But the problem is, is that you and your own men have the highest value. Where you're going is more important than where they're going. The time constraint you're on is more important than the time constraint they're on. That's why when you and I drive, it always happens every once in a while. You might not say anything, but others who are more vocal will say things. Kids, you've watched your parents say choice words in the car when somebody cuts them off. It's because in our minds, something happens where we get in our car and we're in our own little world and we're convinced we're more important than anybody else on the planet at that moment. I had it happen the other day, driving down 118. You know where it goes when you're, you're going west? And like Tapo Canyon, or yeah, Tapo Canyon, Sycamore, it goes from four lanes to three lanes. You know, and you're in the fast lane. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And people try to like wait to the last minute to come over. So I'm cruising along, and in my mind, you know, I'm kind of, you know how you kind of start pacing, and you think, okay, that person's going to go in there. Anybody do that? And so it's all fair. Everybody gets their spot. So I had kind of mapped it out, and I had all the cars lined up. And then all of a sudden, now I'll just confess, I was doing 72 and a 65. Okay, I was going a little over the speed limit. And all of a sudden, from the left, where literally there was no lane left, just the shoulder, this person comes flying in the SUV and cuts right in front of me. I'm like, oh, that's wrong. Anybody ever experienced that? I think Jordan or Courtney were in the car with me. They, I was angry. Why? Because I had a right to the lane before they did. The problem was, in their car, they're having the same mental dialogue that I was. They had a right to the lane more than I did. What is that? That's the core of anger. My life is more valuable than yours. See, that's where we get it wrong, because God values everyone equally. But we get it wrong. We think the world revolves around us. That's why we have the outcome of anger being murder. So Jesus hits the the big one first in verse 21. He says, it looks like murder. The second thing... Look at verse 22, the first part. It looks like resentment. He says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. The key phrase is Jesus says, I tell you, anyone who is angry, which means ongoingly, unresolved anger that continues on and on, will be subject to judgment. 
that chooses not to deal with the issues of anger in our own hearts is ongoingly living in a sense of resentment towards other people. That's where you and I have to be concerned about our understanding of what God is doing in our life because we're choosing not to deal with it. See, now some of us, we can really paint a picture on the outside that everything's okay and we're doing fine, but there's always that small percentage. It could be one person, it could be ten people, but that small percentage in our life that ignite things in us. That we may be able to allow things to lay dormant for a while, but as soon as we encounter that person, we've kind of entered into this environment where everything is just right for a spark to get the fire going in our lives. It's kind of like what we're experiencing now. We are now, the governor's told us we are officially in drought. Like, we all had to figure that one out, right? We are. And that's because we don't have enough rain, which, by the way, when we moved from Oregon, we prayed that we wouldn't have rain, but we didn't mean for here. We meant for Oregon. So sorry for our prayers that seem to be effective. But understanding that we're in a condition now where it doesn't take much at all for what? A fire to really get going, become raging, out of control, because everything is so dry. And it's great to wear flip-flops and have 80 degrees in January, but there's a price to be paid. And you and I have to understand the same thing is true with our anger. We can be fine for a while, but deep-seated in our hearts is this resentment. And when we encounter just the right person that we're offended by or that we have issues with, they are the ones that cause our temperature to rise. And they're the ones that ignite things in us that make us want to react or make us want to do or say something that we shouldn't say. Because what's gone on is that we are, as Jesus said, is angry. We are continually angry, even though we can let it lie for a while. But as soon as that fuel comes into the room, it ignites again. And that's what anger looks like. Is you see, I'm not angry. Let me put you in the right environment with the right person. And the right things happen. You'll find that it's in there. If you and I continue on in this anger, as Jesus talks about, which leads to the third thing going on in verse 22, anger also looks like jealousy. Because Jesus says this, he says, and again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. So what is Jesus saying? The term Raka. What that means, and when Jesus said that, it was very, those who were listening completely understood what he was saying. The word literally means Empty. Or it means empty-minded or empty-headed. It means, in other words, it's like saying to somebody, you are stupid. And not just kind of a joking, sarcastic, kind of off-the-cuff remark, but really valuing the person to the point where you think or devaluing them and saying, you know what, you really are stupid. You really have nothing going for you. There's nothing in your head. There's nothing really, there's nothing valuable about your life. That's, that's kind of what it's saying. It's that extreme that Jesus says, if you're calling, if you think of somebody else stupid, again, it's the value grid that we put into our mind. I'm not stupid, but they are. I have something of value, but they don't. So when Jesus said that, it was really important for people to understand that because that's the value statement that's going inside our lives with anger is that we're constantly valuing other people or devaluing other people. And we have this little grid that we work with and we choose who's good and who's bad and who's smart and who's stupid according to what makes us feel better about ourselves. It's jealousy because we, we can come into a place and feel a sense of competition with other people. We do it in our work environment. When somebody who you don't believe is as smart as you gets, gets a promotion over you, what's the first thing you think of? They're stupid and I'm smart. Why didn't they give me the job? Anybody want to admit you've ever felt that before? We do. It's this value statement that we have in our mind of who is most important. So we think, no, they're, they're not as smart as I am. And so what happens is there's this underlying tension in us. Why? Because of our own insecurity, our own resentment, and jealousy of other people, we become angry at them 
because maybe they have something that you and I want. Just so you know, when I preach these messages, just because I'm a pastor doesn't make me, make me somehow immune to these kind of things. Pastors are as sinful and as human as anybody. And a number of years ago, this is one of the areas in my life that I struggled with. Talk about jealousy. See, because I, I had this mindset when I got into ministry that other churches and other pastors were my competitors. They weren't partners. We were, we were actually working against each other. Who could have the most significant ministry? Who could have the largest church? Who could have the best building? That was what I was coming out of, out of Bible college into this mindset thinking, this is the way that you're supposed to do ministry. And so what would happen is, is that I would live in this sense of resentment. So the worst environment for me, the, the worst place to put me was a pastor's conference. Because you walk into a room and you're filled with, the room's filled with other pastors. And it's like walking in and your worst competition is all around you. And all you do the whole time is you think about how much better you are than the guy next to you. Or how you compare the size of church. It's kind of like, and I lived in this for a long time. Remember Top Gun? Remember Maverick and Goose? I think I showed this before. Great illustration, okay? Maverick and Goose get into the Top Gun school. They go to San Diego. They're in their first briefing. Briefing the commanding officers up in front. He's explaining to them what they're going to walk through in this process. And Maverick, who is, you know, Tom Cruise, he's looking around the room kind of with a smirk on his face. And so Goose says, what in the world are you doing? And I love his line because it's so true of pastors and a lot of people. He said, I'm just looking around to see who's the best. You think, wow, how arrogant. I'll tell you, if you go to a pastor's conference, that's sometimes the climate you feel in the room because pastors are looking around saying, who's the best? Who has the biggest church? Who's most significant? Nothing could be further from what God wants for the church. And God had to humble me and realize, I had to realize that pastors and other churches are not my competitors. They are partners because the body of Christ is one, even though there's different fellowships and we all work together. And you know how wonderful it is now to go to a pastor's conference? And I don't care how, some, how big someone's church is. I don't care how big their building is or how significant their ministry is because I'm not impressed with that because I realize this is about Jesus. It's not about churches. The church is supposed to glorify Jesus. And it's freeing to me to get to know other pastors and love them because we're all in this together. I love it. Years ago, probably 15 years ago, I remember hearing Scott Bauer, who used to be the pastor of Church on the Way, and then also uh, Dudley Rutherford, who's the pastor at Shepherd of the Hills, share about their relationship and how what they would do, because both of them, when they were at certain times, they would live, they lived like five, six miles away from the church they pastored. When they would pull out of their driveway on Sunday morning all the way to their church, every church they passed, they would pray for the pastor in that church. And I remember hearing that. And ever since then, when I pull out of my driveway, I still, I did it for years in Newburgh. I do it today. I back out of my driveway. I start naming every pastor by name I can think of in every church in Simi Valley. And I pray for them on the way to church. And I love it when I turn down Easy Street because I did it this morning. I drove by and Tom DeSomer, who's the pastor of Vital Cross, is out putting signs out for Vital Cross. They meet at the, at the, uh, the dance studio down, excuse me, this way. I get my direction right. Dance studio. And I, I said, hey, Tom. And he waved to me and we just had coffee two weeks ago. And then I drive by Discovery Church and Caleb Cottonbaugh, who's the new pastor. There. Great guy. I had breakfast with him on Tuesday. Great guy. And I'm praying for Caleb. I'm praying for him. Why? Because the success of Discovery, the success of, the success of Vital Cross, the success of, of Cornerstone, of Centerpoint Church, of New Heart, of all those churches is the success of the kingdom of God. We're not in competition anymore. And it's so freeing to be in partnership. And when I hear another church is doing great, I don't think of, oh, I wonder if we could do that. I wish we could be like that. No, I think, thank you, Jesus. Because all of this is about, remember, the finish line is the throne room of God surrounding the throne, worshiping Jesus together. And I get excited about that, as you can tell. Moving on. 
the final thing that what anger looks like is it looks like judgment. And this is when Jesus really gets pointed. Last part of verse 22, he says, But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, I know growing up, I remember like reading this verse, and you think, like, fool became the F word in our house. Like, you never could say the word fool. It was as bad as anything else. But understanding what Jesus was saying was, it is the term, but it's really more than just the term. It really has to do with the significance behind it. Because when Jesus used the phrase, you fool, everybody knew what he was talking about. That was a term that was only used to people who were rebels, who were apostate, who would basically turn their back on God. And the only thing left for them was to be judged and thrown into hell. That was the extreme. So what he's saying is if your hatred and anger has reached the level where you would think of somebody that you would feel better off if you knew that they were thrown into hell, then you have anger issues. Now, some of us, most of us are never going to say that, but I'm sure there's a few people in mind who think, you know, I wouldn't mind if they spent a little time in hell. You feel that way because you're so angry or you're so offended by them. And what Jesus is saying in this is that that judgment what happens is that you and I don't realize it, but by, by saying that or feeling that about somebody else, you and I have just taken the position of the judge. You and I have just, whether we know it or not, we have just chosen to try to become God. Because there's only one judge, and that's God himself, and he will judge the living and the dead, and he will determine who's in and who's out. He's the judge. But when you and I say, we get to the point of saying you fool or thinking that about somebody, then what we've done is we've set ourselves up as God. And that's a scary place to be because there is only one God and God is perfect and you and I are far from it. But if we get to that point where we actually start to think that deeply about other people and the pain we want to cause them and want that to happen, then somehow we're trying to play God with people's lives. Now, there's a road that leads to that kind of thinking and that kind of life. And it's something that you and I take kind of lightly. It's a thing called criticism. Now, there is, there is positive critique. There's helpful critique in people's lives. But you and I like to criticize people because criticizing other people makes us feel better about ourselves. The more we can push people down, the better we can feel about ourselves and our own inadequacies and our own failures. So we critique everything. We always find a way to make ourselves look just a little bit better than anybody else. That is the beginning of the road that leads to thinking foolishly of other people. It happens, you turn on the TV right now, we watch anything that has to do with politics. It is amazing to think how Republicans think they're perfect and Democrats are failures. And how Democrats, Democrats think they're perfect and Republicans are failures. Or how liberals think they're perfect and conservatives have missed it. Or how conservatives think they're perfect and liberals have missed it. Have I touched on everybody yet? We've missed the point. Because there is no political view that's perfect or any kind of allegiance that's perfect. And so for us to constantly critique people based on what we think is right and wrong, we've become the judge. Now, I know some of you got this like first service, you're really saying, well, wow, I know, I'm, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. I, they are wrong, right? We've missed the point. We critique everybody around us. We critique what? The pastor, we critique churches, we critique neighbors, we critique our job, we critique our boss. We, why? Because it's inside of us. Now, here's the scary thing. If you and I choose to live a life that way, we're constantly, we're setting ourselves up as the judge, we're taking this, the role of God, then we'll talk more in depth about it. But then you get to Matthew chapter 7 and listen to what Jesus says in verses 1 and 2. He says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others... You will be judged, and the, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Whoa. 
You mean if I play God in other people's life and I judge them according to my yardstick, then someday when I stand before you, I'm going to be measured the same way? That's what Jesus is saying. So if you and I want to play God, then someday we're going to meet the real one. And he's going to say, hey, remember how you lived your life and how you expected perfection from everybody and how you were constantly critiquing them and some people you got so angry with them that you'd rather see them in hell than anywhere else? Let's just go ahead and apply the same to you today. I don't want to be there. I don't want to experience that. That's why it's so important for you and I to understand the core of anger and what it does to us can be costly in our lives and in eternity. So moving on, how do you and I make a transition from living that life of anger to actually getting to a place where we're free from that? And one of the things you and I have to understand in order for us to not be people who deal with anger is that you and I have to learn to starve anger. Because what you and I have a tendency to do is to fuel it. And when we fuel it and we don't deal with it, it gets worse and worse. But how do you and I starve it? How do we extinguish it in our lives? Jesus gives us ways to do this. Verse 23 first thing he tells us is that you and I need to listen to God's voice. So verse 23 says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Remember. What does that mean? Remember as though you had forgotten. It's amazing when you strive to follow Jesus, you strive to engage with God, something amazing happens. He causes you to remember things that you would rather forget. Especially when you and I come into worship service, we come to a place where we're really submitting ourselves before the Lord. Maybe it's in devotions or in our life. We're really seeking God. It's amazing how those things that we haven't dealt with come to the surface. And Jesus is saying, when you come to worship, when you come to engage me, you come to engage the God of the universe, remember, and you are reminded of something, you need to listen to that reminder. I'm convinced, I've seen it in my own life so many times, God doesn't have a challenge in speaking to us. God is not silent. The problem is our hearing. It really is. God speaks all the time. It's just, are you and I going to choose to listen to what he's saying, or are we going to choose to tune him out? See, you and I, one of the things I've discovered in my own life is I have the volume control on God's voice. I do. I can turn it up loud and really listen to it, or I can tone it way down. And one of the ways that we tone it way down is we'll hear God's voice, but we'll just choose to be disobedient. We'll know we're supposed to do it, but we say, you know what? I just, I'm not going to. And I choose not to do that. And when we come before God and we remember there's somebody that has an offense with us, we can easily say, ah, forget it. I'm not going to deal with it. It's not that big of a deal. And choose not to do it. And it's missing the point. But some of us, we go to the extent where it's not just, I know, but I choose not to. I somehow feel I, I can create an environment where I can live in denial. That's not really God. It's not really that big of an issue. Or maybe I just, I, that's not really God speaking to me. And we can, we can make God's voice change in a lot of different ways so that we don't have to do anything. But then there's the other extreme that we finally, either we've heard him or we try to live in denial. But when we actually come face to face with having to remember that God's saying there's a broken relationship in your life that you need to deal with and we don't want to deal with it, you know what we have a tendency to do? We run. We avoid it altogether. Because we just don't want to deal with it. And we try to pretend that by running, that somehow we can get away from the pain. We can get away from being unresolved. And somehow, it'll just take care of itself. It never does. It never just resolves itself. That's why every time we go to re-engage with God, He's going to take us right back and say, Remember, remember, you have to deal with your horizontal relationships if you're going to want your vertical relationship to be right. And one of the areas I've seen this happen, I talked 
to a couple of people in between services about this. But, but one of the areas that we in the body of Christ deal with this, where we deal with avoidance, and this is not true, but in my experience, I've watched about 75% of church transitions when someone leaves one church to go in another. There's a lot of different reasons, but about 75% underneath the surface have to do with a personal offense. They have to do with something happened in that church where either a leader or another person offended them, and instead of trying to deal with that, they decided to avoid it, and they left. And then what happens is then you go to a new church and you say, oh, everything's great here and you're getting along with everybody and you think you're moving on with God, but you haven't moved anywhere because you just left a broken relationship that was undealt with. And it happens over and over and over again. So hear me, some of you might be thinking, oh, I'm just visiting for the first time and I came from another church. Here's the thing. You and I should never leave a relationship or leave a location because we are running from a relationship. Understand that. Now, there are a lot of things that happens in churches, and there are a lot of things that transition. And, but here's the thing. You and I cannot leave one church and go to another and be unresolved and think that we're going to grow. We can't. Because the moment we engage God in one church, he's going to remind us of the other church. He's going to say, remember, remember what you left behind. That's why I've had conversations for years with people that will come to me, and especially if they want to get involved and they move forward and they start telling me some things about their former church. One of the things I'll say, hey, it sounds like you're still unresolved with your former pastor or leader or friend. You need to make that right. It doesn't mean that you go back to the church, not necessarily unless God calls you to, but you may make contact with that individual and say, I need to ask for your forgiveness for being offended by you. I need to do what Jesus told me to do. I'm leaving my gift at the altar because I've been reminded that I'm unresolved with you and I go back and I deal with it. I've had people do that and it is the key that unlocks their future. Because no longer do they have this debris field behind them. Now they live at peace with people. And that's what, remember Paul quoted it so many times in Romans 12, says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with others. So you and I do that. Leads to the next thing. I know this is a really easy, lighthearted message this morning, but moving right along. Verse 24. The second thing you and I can do to starve anger is to be right with God and be right with people. Same thing. So, Jesus says, leaving your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled, then come back and offer your gift. This is really powerful. Jesus is saying to you and I, dealing with broken relationships is so important. I would rather have you disengage with worshiping me and go deal with that than I would have you to be phony before me and pretend that everything's okay. It's pretty powerful. He's saying it's so important that your horizontal relationships are right. I'm asking you for a moment to disengage your worship to go deal with that so that you can come back and then offer your gift with a pure and right heart and right relationships. That's important. See, you and I think somehow that we can live in this vacuum between us and God. Oh, it's just between me and God. It's never between me and God. It's always between God and I and all of us together. That's the way God has designed us, to live in relationship. That's why we have to deal with these kind of things. It's important to understand the height of your relationship with God is determined by the breadth of its relationship with other people. That's the way it works. You cannot disconnect the two. You can't go out and live on a mountainside by yourself and say, I'm really close to God and never engage with another human being. You can't do that. Because God has worked it out in us that we are connected to each other. 
Before Kim and I got married, I realized how much things were going to cost, and I was in Bible college, and we were talking about this, and so I was working a job, and I thought, I need to make more money, and so one of my friends in Bible college was a brick mason. He said, hey, you can come work for me for a little while. I'm like, okay, I'm in. So I started working with him, and so coming in at the ground floor and being, you know, no one below me, everybody above me, I got to do all the fun stuff, all the really joyful, wonderful, easy work, which is digging trenches. So we're at this one house, and we were building, we were putting in a wall around the backyard, and so it was my job to start, you know, we had lined everything out, and I was supposed to start digging, and so I start digging, and I'm, I'm digging, and I thought pretty hard for like probably an hour or so, hour or two, and I got it to a certain level, and I thought, that looks really good, so I went and found my friend, and I said, hey, I said, come take a look at the trench I dug, and he comes back over, and he goes, well, you're not done yet, are you? I said, well, I thought I was. He goes, oh, no. He goes, you're not even close to being deep enough. He goes, you have to go at least probably three times deeper than that. I said, are you serious? He said, oh, yeah. He said, this wall is going to be relatively high. And in order for it to be this height, it's got to have a certain depth because we have to pour concrete and there's going to be rebar. And he starts explaining. So he goes, start digging again. So the rest of the day, I dug and dug and dug. And finally, by the end of the day, like eight hours of digging, I finally got to the depth. He said, yep, that's good enough. He goes, now we can pour concrete. And he was explaining to me as we were doing this that it's, it's the depth of that and as well how you interlock the bricks together and how you use rebar that's going to make this wall strong. And so he said the higher we want to go with the wall, the deeper we have to dig and the stronger the foundation is. And the, the bricks have to be intertwined together in order to hold to have strength in the wall. The same thing is true for you and I. We want to rise to great lengths or great levels with God in our life. And he says, great. Realize that you're going to do that as you are in healthy relationship with other people. You can't divorce the two. They are together. So being good with God means that we're good with each other. And it's so important for us to understand that we constantly have to work at being in right relationship with each other. Not live violated relationships thinking that somehow we can be okay with God. Which leads to the third thing, that how you and I starve anger. Verse 24, the second part, Jesus tells us that you and I have to initiate reconciliation. He says, leave your gift there again in the front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come back and offer your gift. First, go. This is the hard part. When it comes to being offended with people, if you're like me, usually you find a way that, that you can justify that it wasn't your fault. So you don't have to be the first one to apologize. Anybody relate to that? It's their fault. They're the ones that did it. They're the ones, in fact, even Jesus says, if you remember that your brother is offended at you, you have an offense. They're offended by you. Well, I didn't do anything wrong. It was They got offended by whatever, and so it's their issue to deal with. They need to come to me first. Jesus is saying, you be the first one to go. First, Go. He doesn't say, wait here at the altar with your gift until the person wakes up and realizes that there's an issue. He says, be the first one to first do that first before you even relate to me vertically. You need to do that first. Initiate that. That's hard for you and I. Why? We want to wait. We want to somehow justify our, uh, our place so that we don't have to do anything. We can just wait. And someday we can say, well, if... If they would have realized it was their fault, they would have come and made it right. But I did everything I can do. No, God says you need to be the first one to go. You need to initiate that. It's kind of like public speaking. Remember public speaking when you were in school? It's like everyone's worst nightmare. And we're so afraid of it that we always never, nobody ever wanted to go first. At least in my classes. You know, everyone's like, no, don't pick me, don't pick me. And everyone wanted to go last. Except, you know, there's some teachers that they would just kind of trump that and say, we're going alphabetical today. I'm like, oh, great. My last name begins with A. Here we go. 
But we're always afraid. But I found out something. That if you go first, it's way better. If there's 30 kids in your class and you go first, you're done. The stress is over. You don't have to worry about it. And then you just relax until the end of the period or how many days it takes to go through all the oral reports that everybody has to do. But if you're the last kid of 30, that's like torture. Because you're not listening to anything anyone's saying in front of you. You're just afraid of when it's your turn. And you're the last to go. Sometimes you and I live our life in that tension. I don't want to be the first to initiate. I don't want to deal with this. So we live unresolved constantly when what we're missing is the peace that God wants us to have with somebody else that he's desiring for you and I to experience in our life. Can you imagine if we were actually peacemakers, that we actually were the initiators of peace, that we didn't wait for somebody to respond. We actually went to them first. Our lives would be so much better. We would deal with things so much quicker in the way that we handle our lives. And there's a final thing that I want to touch on. Jesus goes on in verse 25 and 26. He says, Do you and I need to learn to resolve things sooner than later? So he goes on and he says, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. He's giving a great example. Do it while you're still on your way, and, or he may hand you over to the judge, and then the judge to the officer, and then ultimately you end up in prison. And I tell you, truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus is giving a scenario of two people who were at odds. And instead of dealing with it right away, it became a legal matter. And that legal matter led to court, and that court led to jail. And that jail led to having to pay every last penny. It's a journey that you and I go on and that when we choose not to deal with things quickly, it only gets worse. It never gets better tomorrow. It only gets worse. When we are offended by people, when we're dealing with anger and resentment in our heart, tomorrow doesn't make it better. It only makes it worse. Because of our own sin nature, we find ways in our mind over time to be more and more offended by other people, not less. So we'll say, oh, no, I'm fine. It's because you haven't been in the same room with that person yet. Just wait till they walk in the door and watch the temperature rise. It's still unresolved. Deal with things quickly. As soon as they happen, deal with them right away. Otherwise, it's just going to get worse. In fact, that's what Paul reminds us of in Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that if I remain unresolved and angry at other people, it's not just between me and that person. There's another party that gets involved. The devil gets involved. Unresolved anger, offense, is the devil's back door into the church. I've seen it happen time and time again. See, we're worried about, you, it's, it's not a, you don't need to worry about the enemy that you can see. It's the enemy you can't see that kills you. And the enemy works overtime in the church. The greatest threat to the church, it has nothing to do with what happens outside these walls. The greatest threat to the church is what happens inside our relationships. The enemy gets a foothold. Why? Because we live in offense towards somebody else and we won't resolve it and we refuse to deal with it, yet we still try to pretend everything's okay. The enemy has a hold of us. You say, well, I didn't give him a right to do that. Yes, you did. You opened the back door and you welcomed him in to be able to get a hold in our lives. And it will destroy the church faster than anything else. Let me close with this. A number of years ago, when we were up in Oregon, I I experienced something that I had never experienced in my life to that point and haven't experienced since that point. We had been there for about a year and a half, two years. 
And one night, God gave me a dream that was so vivid and so powerful about the way that the enemy was at work in our church there. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night, and you know when you wake up and you still feel like you're in the dream, it's so real. It took me a while to come, kind of come out of it, and I, was, and I finally came out of it, and I went back to sleep. And the next morning, the Lord brought it all back again, just reminded me of this dream. And so I had never experienced that before, so I actually made some phone calls, because I want to make sure that I wasn't crazy, honestly. So I called the former pastor of that church. I called my dad. I even called Dennis Easter, uh, people who I respect, and said, hey, let me tell you this dream. Am I, like, out to lunch, or did I have too much pizza the night before? I need to know this is the Holy Spirit. And all three of them said, yeah, I believe the Lord's saying that to the church. So next Sunday, I shared my dream with the church, just risking, saying, okay, they're going to think I'm a nut job. But I explained, and I walked through, and I said, listen, as, as I explaining the vividness of the dream and what it meant, I really felt like the core of what it was is that on the outside, we looked like a great church. The church was growing. People were coming. Everybody loved it. But on the inside, the enemy was destroying us because so many people had decided to live in a fence. They had unresolved relationships and broken relationships with people, and nobody wanted to do it. So we had all these little groups of people that would hang out, but no one would cross the aisle or be a part of the other people's groups because they were offended at each other. And so we went through a season where we called the church to repentance. Because whether we admit it or not, we had opened the door for the enemy to harass us and to hamstring us and to hold us down from what God was trying to do in our lives. Now, God hasn't given me that dream for New Hope, but I know one thing's for true, true across the, the body of Christ is that we deal with broken relationships. We have to deal with offense. We have to deal with the anger and resentment inside of us. And I know that that there is that issue in our church, because it's true of all churches, that there are things that I think we have yet to achieve and yet to embrace and yet to become because we still have this ability to live in unresolved relationships. The success of the church is not determined by the pastor. The success of the church is determined by the Holy Spirit working through people who have surrendered their lives and their relationships under his conviction to be healthy. That's what makes a healthy church. And so you and I don't realize, but what we may do in the small corner of our life will influence and affect the rest of the body because we're opening a door. And so I encourage you, if you are in unresolved relationship with some or brokenness in, in a relationship, deal with it today. Deal with it so that you can make sure. Now here, let me give you some things I know that are, are going to come up. These are questions. You say, well, I've gone to this person and I explained to them what happened and I asked for their forgiveness and I did everything I could do and the conversation didn't go the way I wanted it to go. They didn't respond the same way. In fact, they got more offended that I was offended to them and it just seemed to make it worse. Actually, it didn't make it worse. See, because what God requires of you and I is our actions, our decisions. You and I can't control somebody else. But what you and I can do is, like I said, what I'm quoting from Paul in, in Romans 12. As far as it depends on you, live at peace. So you may go to somebody and they may not respond, but what you have done, this is what's beautiful, is you've opened the door of reconciliation in that relationship. And then when you walk away from that, even though it didn't go the way you did, that you wanted to, every day of your life you pray for that person and you constantly forgive them because you're going to want to unforgive them because they're still offended at you. But you constantly forgive them because what you're doing is you're praying someday they will submit to the Holy Spirit and listen and they will come to you and do the same thing that you did to them and that is they will ask for your forgiveness. But there are other times when you go and it, it actually goes the way it's supposed to. Someone responds and they say, you know what? 
I forgive you. And would you please forgive me for what I said or what I did? And God brings reconciliation. God brings peace. I just talked to somebody in between services and they experienced that. And she said, the peace that came over me was incredible. It's the peace that God wants you and I to live in. So go ahead and close your eyes. We're gonna, I'm going to pray and conclude in a moment. But I want, I want to remind you of the opportunity that you and I have when it comes to dealing with this in our lives and also dealing with this within our own church. I have your eyes closed because I just want you to focus in on, on, on a tangible way that God may be calling us to, to work this out. So in the past, I've mentioned one of the things of, of, about a policy about gossip that will help to close this circle of broken relationships and offenses and gossip in our church. Let me just remind you of it again. If somebody comes to you and they have voiced that they have a challenge or an offense with another person, after they may finish talking, what you need to tell them is that they need to go to that person because they're unresolved. They need to go and they need to, as far as it depends on them, try to make peace with that person. And then you tell them that you're going to give them one week to do that. And then at the end of that week, you come back to that individual and you ask them if they've gone and they've sought reconciliation, they've tried to bring peace. And if they haven't, then you tell that person that I'm going to go to the person that you're offended with and I'm going to tell them that you have an offense. Now, I know that some of you may think that's really harsh. When you and I learn to live by that rhythm, gossip dies. Offenses get dealt with and we become a healthy church. So I want to encourage you. See, what happens when we do that is that not only do people deal with the offenses they have to deal with, but I want you to capture this. What happens is people realize that they can't gossip because when they gossip, they're going to get challenged. And when they get challenged, they realize they have to deal with it in the way that God has purposed for them. And so I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know what your relationships look like. But either we as individuals need to deal with those relationships or we need to help other people to deal with those relationships. Because God wants us to be healthy and right as we choose to follow him. So Lord Jesus, I pray. I know what you call us to do is far beyond our ability. That's why we trust your Holy Spirit who lives in us to empower us. To be people who truly live beyond the anger and resentment and jealousy that sometimes resides in us. That truly strives to live in healthy relationships. Lord, I pray for courage. I pray for strength. Lord, I I pray that you would give us a boldness beyond what we've had before in a way that we love each other so much that we just can't continue on living in broken relationships so that ultimately, Lord, we can be healthy, that we can walk into a church building or we can walk into a store and we can encounter people that maybe, Lord, in the past we might have been offended by or lived in a broken relationship, but now, Lord, there is peace. Because we've chosen to do what you've said. We've left our gift at the altar. We've gone to make things right. And then we've come back and we've re-engaged once again. So that we're healthy horizontally. And we're healthy vertically. Lord Jesus, help us to live that out in our lives. In your name. Amen.